This episode is brought to you by Say the Things Life Story Creations. Say the things to the ones who need to hear it. From a five-minute personalized message, short biography, or a whole biography, let us help you say the things about your life. Maybe it's your story that you leave after you're gone. Maybe it's you reading your grandchild's favorite book and giving it to them for their birthday. We offer a variety of services, and we're here to help you talk about you. Say the things. Contact us for a consultation. Say the things Midwest at gmail.com. Welcome to Little Crimes on the Prairie. Today is part two of Fate of Fortune. This is the story of Gaston Means. And if you haven't listened to part one yet, I suggest that you do that before you continue with this episode. It'll make a lot more sense if you do that. I don't think I have any business to blab about today. So yeah, we can just jump right in and we'll recap part one just a little bit. In part one, we learned about James King, Maud King, and Gaston Means and how they all became intertwined. In the beginning of part one, I talked a little bit about serendipity and fate and how they are different. And this is a really good story to show the contrast because if you look at 20-year-old James, he left Vermont for Illinois. His parents were already deceased, and he had like $270 to build his life on. And now when Gaston was 20, he was gearing up to drop out of the University of North Carolina. And he was totally fine just taking a job that his father got him. Gaston seemed to manipulate the people and situations around him, while James seemed to be like honestly familiar with serendipity. James made millions in the lumber industry in early Chicago, and... He really made a name for himself. Not only did he make a name for himself, he really wanted to leave a legacy. James' last will and testament was a masterpiece that did just that. When James lost his first wife, Sarah, he remained single for over 10 years, and he seemed to enjoy himself and everything around him. He eventually met 28-year-old Maude Robinson, and he married her. Although he wasn't exactly chomping at the bit, He made her sign a prenup first. They married in 1901, and he died in 1905. After how this whole story played out, I'd really like to see his death certificate, even though nothing suspicious about that has ever been raised. I'm still really curious to see it. So James left Maude, his new bride, $100,000 upon his death, and he'd already given her $200,000 for music lessons in Paris. Um, so that's like $300,000. Seems a little steep for some 1900s booty, just saying. But nonetheless, all of that was paid to her, and she did contest the will. She settled with Northern Trust Company, um, who was the de facto executor of James' estate. So they settled with her for like a million bucks, and she just headed off to Europe to waste some of that hard-earned money. Eventually, Maud's sister Maisie hired Gaston Means to help look after Maud's affairs and her money. In just two years, Gaston had lost most of her fortune in stocks, and he decided that what everyone needed was a trip to his hometown for some good old southern hospitality and, of course, some rabbit hunting. Everyone was pretty sure that Maude was not aware that she was almost broke. Gaston's family played host to a grand old time. Maude even planned a good old-fashioned barbecue, basically inviting the whole town. 
Now, Gaston was sure to get Maud a brand new pistol because she didn't really care for the one that she was using for the rabbit hunting. Even though she'd never had an inclination to hunt for anything prior to this, and Maud's mother, Anna, even testified that Maud was scared of guns and she refused to even touch one. So just putting that out there, not that it really matters because during some moonlight target practice, Maud got totally dead in the most believable, not at all predictable gun accident. I mean, really, it could happen to anyone in a remote area shooting targets in the dark with the one person who manages your entire life and has nothing to gain by you totally shooting yourself accidentally though behind the left ear with a Colt 25 with a palm pressure safety I mean could happen to anyone right well the jury for the inquest in Concord agreed with Gaston and immediately following the inquest Gaston Maisie and the undertaker hightailed it back to Chicago with Maud's body just to get her in the ground now, word made the rounds to New York City and Chicago about the suspicious circumstances, and Maud was exhumed and re-examined by a pathologist, and wouldn't you know it, he determined her death to be a homicide. With a murder charge looming in his home county, that's when the world learned about a second will of James King. Show him what you got, but don't let him have it. You gotta tease him a little. Make him chase you. Gaston claimed to have found this will in mid-August of 1915, and with Maud totally aware of this new will, Gaston had set off to have it verified by experts for the last two years. I mean, because it's pretty clear the Violet King had a literal last-minute change of heart. Screw the old man's home and the rest. It should all go to Maud. That's what that will said. And it was conveniently witnessed by Maisie Melvin herself, her husband, and the president of Northern Trust. Of those three witnesses, though, only Maisie was still living. Talk about bad luck, huh? But, I mean, such luck, such serendipity to have come across such a valuable document while sorting through some old papers Maud had so carelessly tossed aside. It's as if she didn't even know it was there. Oh, Maud, what a silly woman you were. If only she hadn't been so eager to go shooting targets in the moonlight with the one guy who had her power of attorney and, you know, accidentally shot herself in the back of the head and died accidentally. Hmm. Weird. This alleged second will was not presented to the court despite having found it almost two years earlier. Well, obviously means needed to get it verified. And it had just taken that long, and they were just set to file the newly discovered will in court the very next week. How inconvenient for Gaston. Thankfully for him, he had the full support of Maud's caring sister Maisie, who wasn't only a witness to the signing of this alleged second will, she was also the beneficiary and executor to Maud's entire estate. Oh, and if you think that that's it, oh, no, 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 no. There's much more. Gaston had a contract signed by Maude that assured him almost 
a million dollars if the will was successfully verified. So with Maude pushing up daisies, her power of attorney in his hand and Maisie nodding her head, Gaston had done it. He'd finally made it. He landed his whale. The biggest score of his life was all but in the bag. You know, once this little pesky murdery ordeal was out of the way, then he would be set. Ah, living the life. No more schlepping around, busting his ass, blackmailing and extorting people just to get by. Now he'll have more free time to extort and blackmail people for sport. Ha! <laughs> you didn't think he was planning to retire, did you? Not even close. And here's where we left off in part one, with Gaston's literal home court advantage. But I got, I say, I gotta show the little egghead I still got a couple of tricks up my sleeve. And we'll be right back. Do you often find that you need a distraction from everyday life? Do you like true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, and other weird, dark tales? Well, tune in and turn up Weird Distractions Podcast, where we, your hosts, Christy and Alex, bring you a weird distraction to help you get through the work week. Every Sunday morning, you can find our show on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Good Pods, and more. So grab a snack, get comfy, and make sure to lock those doors. Need a distraction? We got you. And now, back to the story. Gaston was eventually brought to trial in Maude's murder. And before O.J. Simpson ever had his dream team, Gaston Means had his dream team. His legal counsel consisted of prominent members of the North Carolina Bar, including E.T. Kanzler and Frank Armfield. There were a few more, not to mention his father, the Colonel, W.G. Means, and his brother Brandon served as advisors. The prosecution was led by state solicitor Hayden Clement, with the assistance of Elsie Caldwell, Jake Newell, as well as the Cook County, Illinois, assistant district attorney, John Dooling. Before they could issue a warrant for Gaston's arrest, they had to bring the case in front of a grand jury that was basically made up of Gaston's pals. They certainly weren't in any hurry to answer, but had no choice given the evidence. They eventually had to return an indictment. A warrant was issued, and Gaston Means was arrested September 22, 1917. The days leading up to his arrest were full of subpoenas, motions, and pervasive dislike for the Northerners involved with this case in any way. Brandon Means even punched a Northern reporter for making a picture of his sister. The trial was set in Cabarrus County, to begin on November 26, 1917. Now, this case was in the papers across the country. It was so scandalous and dramatic. It had a cast of characters so eccentric, it was impossible to ignore. Everything about the case was sensational, and with World War I still raging, it was a welcome distraction. Jaws dropped when Gaston revealed his work with the Germans and the William Burns Detective Agency. Gaston basically came right out and said that he assisted the Germans in furthering their interest in the war prior to the United States getting involved in World War I. After the United States got involved, it, I guess he just returned to being a regular private detective. 
Heads would continue to spin throughout the entire trial, and for years after that, you will soon find out. During the trial, Maud's receipts and ledgers were presented to the court, and they showed just over $100,000 remained of her once handsome estate. Trusts were dissolved, $25,000 borrowed to means. There was also a sum that was borrowed to J.B. Buster Foraker, who was a really good friend of Maud's and the widow of former governor and senator from Ohio, Joseph B. Foraker. From my understanding, that loan had collateral, but I mean, I don't know that she was holding her breath to get it back either. Sounds like it was the result of both Buster and Maud losing at a a dice game that had taken place in Maud's uh, Park Avenue, New York apartment. And speaking of those apartments, she paid $9,000 a month for three apartments on Park Avenue. One housed the Means family, and the other two were for Maud and Maisie. Obviously, the defense used this to illustrate Maud's reckless spending. Even though Gaston had wiped out her trust, stocks, and other securities, a trunk full of documents was seized as Afton Means was attempting to take them from Gaston's Park Avenue apartment. They were seized, and the prosecution was particularly interested in one sheet of stationery belonging to Means. It had his name engraved on it, his address, all of that, and so it was clearly his stationery. And this single sheet of paper had Maud's signature written several times in a row, like as if you were practicing something. I remember practicing my mom's signature when I used to try to forge my notes for school. So that, yeah, I mean, it definitely rings a bell. It's definitely something people do when they are practicing signing someone else's name, I guess. Throughout the trial, firearms experts disputed with each other. An expert for the defense said that bullets are crazy as cotton. Unpredictable. Sometimes they are, I get that, but mostly you can determine which direction they came from at least. One more of the several experts testifying for the defense used the N-word in open court to explain the thickness of foreheads. It's really just shocking to read. Means actually testified in his trial and had an answer for everything. Many years later in 1964, the Raleigh News and Observer quoted Hayden Clement as saying, Gaston Means was the smartest witness I ever examined. Throughout the trial, Means was repeatedly instructed to speak to the person addressing him and not the jury. He made a habit of turning simple answers into speeches and making complex theories regarding Maud's fate seem like actual facts. Although most of this went unchecked by Judge E.B. Klein, occasionally he would reprimand Means I suppose, to make everything look good. Numerous witnesses for the defense claimed they had also placed guns in the crotch of the same sycamore tree at Blackwater Spring, and not one had even fallen down. One really interesting witness for the defense even testified he had turned his ankle on a root while he had his knife in his hand. He claimed that he stumbled in such a way that his knife struck him behind the left ear. This is also something he failed to duplicate in court, which I imagine was hilarious trying to watch this dude act it out. Means and his cohorts were 
quite comfortable in the courtroom. They laughed and winked at one another as if they weren't concerned about any of the allegations at all. Like I said, reading it just over a hundred years later has me staring in disbelief at what was seemingly normal. Rereading article after article, I can't possibly be reading this right. But yeah, I was. And yeah, it's absolutely true and chronicled in thousands of articles in newspapers across the country. I used newspapers.com for a majority of my research, piecing together the facts from thousands of archived articles. In December of 1917, Gaston was acquitted of Maude's murder. He and his defense team basically flipped the bird at the process and the court of law. Now listen, Maude may not have been held dear by my family, likely despised, but I can't help but feel sorry for her. I'm not sure what she deserved, but I don't think a bullet to the back of the head was it. I feel sorry that her sister had either a seething hatred for her or she was too being blackmailed by Gaston. I honestly don't see any other explanation of her blind devotion to Means over her sister. She was almost prosecuted for conspiracy as Means' co-conspirator. The papers that reported it were kind and didn't flat out say her name, but it was certainly implied. Those closest to Maude who weren't trying to rob her blind and kill her whispered that she was about to cut all ties with Gaston because she knew the second will was a forgery. These people spoke to her character as being mostly honest and good. Gaston's forgery of her late husband's will had gone too far. She simply wouldn't have any of it and had already spoken to an attorney in regards to Gaston's control. If any of that was true, that would be one hell of an inconvenience and a damn strong motive. It almost makes you wonder how much of Maude's life was choreographed or scripted by her sister or her mother. Like I said, makes me feel sorry for her. With the freedom to move on from the murder trial, Maisie and Gaston file the alleged second will of James King in probate court. According to that same 1964 article by the Raleigh News and Observer, Hayden Clements recounts after Means was acquitted, Means walked into Clements' office and tried to hire him to represent him in the case of the second will in the Chicago courts. Clements said, You know damn well I know your will is a forgery. Gaston just laughed and walked out. I mean, you really can't make this shit up. Northern Trust and the probate court sent notice to all beneficiaries, including Hattie A. Bassett in Rushmore, Minnesota. Hattie was my great-great-grandmother, widow of Edward H. Bassett, Civil War veteran. She was the daughter of Benjamin F. King and a niece of James King. She had built a beautiful home near Rushmore, Minnesota, her and Edward had homesteaded the land after the Civil War had ended. The grand home she built was well-deserved after years in a sod home and eventually a small frame house where her family endured the harshest winters and the most unforgiving summers. The notice she received regarding the probate of this obvious forgery brought a deep anxiety and fear, and understandably so. Her inheritance had been placed in trust for her heirs, and was used to expand their homestead and farming operation, including building that beautiful home. The uncertainty of it all was beyond comprehension. 
Fortunately, this judge wasn't having any of it, eventually ruling the second will a forgery. Judge Horner noted Maud had never mentioned the will to anyone who wouldn't directly benefit from its authenticity. Judge Horner described Maud's silence on the second will as a silence deep as death, a silence that almost speaks. Judge Horner also made it known that he doubted Maud had ever even seen the forged will. He also exonerated Maisie and Gaston's lawyers from imposing on the court. Oh, but of course they appealed that decision, and it was upheld by Judge Jesse A. Baldwin. Finally, some 15 years after James King's death, his estate was exactly where he wanted it to be, in the hands of Northern Trust Company, where it still sits today as an endowment of Presbyterian homes. When I think of James C. King, I think of a man who lived a genuinely serendipitous life, a man who knew hard work and hard luck, but he seemed to find silver linings among the cotton clouds that dotted the endless prairie skies before Chicago grew upward and outward. James King is more than just a great uncle of mine. To me, he represents the American dream, the American dream we all hold so dear. I feel a great sense of pride when I think of his entrepreneurial spirit and his hard work. I especially feel pride when I think of his generosity his concern for aged men who may have no one to care for them and nowhere to go in their old age. 82 years after his death, in 1987, Barbara Brotman wrote an article for the Chicago Tribune that brings me incredible joy to read. And I'm going to share it with you guys so you can see what James' true legacy is. The article's called, Retirement Becomes a Manly Art Too. Aces are low, kings are high, said John Freeman, shuffling the large print cards. You remember how to play this, Mr. Butler? Charles Butler, 86, a retired Illinois Central Railroad supervisor, fixed Freeman, a 20-year-old Northwestern University student making a weekly visit as part of his studies of the aged, with a steely blue gaze beneath his white hair. I have played it more than once, he informed him. The whippersnapper reprimanded. The men proceeded to play cards. Dealer's choice. Piles of chips gathered and moved. Freeman dealt. It was a manly scene. Even if Ralph Binney had to be assisted in his game by Jane Silverman, activity assistant. Manly scenes are what the men here like. The James C. King Home in Evanston is a retirement home and nursing facility for men only. It was established as such in 1911 by King, its founder, a Chicago Board of Trade member who left a will creating a trust fund for a home for elderly men. Serving a population overwhelmingly dominated by women, it is an extreme rarity. Administrator David Benny believes it is the only home for elderly men in the state and one of only a handful in the nation. So rare are men in such facilities, life in the King home looks strikingly different from others. At other homes, said activity director Eric Homer, I've never seen a woman sitting with a stack of chips in front of her smoking a cigar. Although some of the men said that they would enjoy living here even if there were women, others preferred the male atmosphere, which they described as similar to a men's club. I think women would complicate things, said Benny, an 85-year-old retired stockbroker. He sat in his wheelchair in the airy solarium, and vocally demonstrated his freedom from fear of causing a ladylike blush. 
It's cold as a whore's heart in here, he grumbled. This wouldn't be the same if ladies were here to live, said Francis Ulrich, a retired businessman. For one thing, he said, I wouldn't be here. You don't have the chattering of female voices, said Ray Strout, aged 86. Have you ever eaten in a tea room restaurant? Did you ever listen to the noise level? We don't have that here. We have peace. I have all the respect in the world for women, said John Giles, 82, a retired engineer. But they get to talking and reminiscing. Yak, yak, yak. I'm not used to that. The gentlemen here are by no means antisocial. Many are active in outside activities and senior citizens groups that include women. The home has hosted several wedding receptions for residents who have then moved out. I love to see women come in to visit, said Giles. I get tired of smelling men. But visits are all most of the men want. Some are widowers who do not care to become involved with another woman. Strout, on the other hand, has three lady friends, but believes that living with women can actually be a social disadvantage. If a man becomes involved with a woman living in the same facility but later chooses to disengage, he said, word can spread. She tells all the other women you're a skunk, Strout said. You're ruined. He is glad that he lives apart from his lady friends. Never play around home, he advised. Unlike actual men's clubs, the James C. King home has not been accused of discrimination. It is not permitted to admit women under the rules of the trust fund established by James C. King. The male-only restriction probably is a marketing deficit, said Benny, for there are far more elderly women who are potential residents than elderly men. Ninety percent of most co-educational retirement and nursing homes are women. Here, activities are of a masculine nature. The King home has a pool table and a well-equipped workshop instead of the stitchery or painting. Bingo is a staple of many retirement homes, but here, the men play for money. It is easier to find friends among the 72 male residents, most of them successful professional people, than among a handful of men at most co-educational homes, said Giles. Many of the men do not believe they could converse on the same level with women of their generation, most of whom did not pursue careers, said Homer. Discussion tends toward such topics as third-generation nuclear arms and the Vatican's banking system. They are conservative men with an average age of 86. They wear suits or jackets and ties at nearly all times, including exercise sessions. They are required to wear jackets on the first floor. Last year, residents voted down an attempt to lift the restriction during breakfast. Twice a year, there are the equivalent of college mixers, social events held with the Mather Home, a nearby retirement home and nursing facility for women. Last year, the women invited the men to a picnic on the Mather Home's grounds. The men asked the women to a Halloween program of skits performed by an Evanston community organization. The events are considered great successes by all. A lot of the women fuss over the men, said the Mather Home's executive director. They're actually treated like kings. There have been instances where individuals have been asked to go on dates, to go for a walk in the evening. They ask me if they should go said Sperber, who sees nothing improper in this. I say, what can possibly happen at the age of 85 or 90? I always have to laugh every time I read this article because it reminds me of the movie Grumpy Old Men, and I love it. 
Because honestly, grumpy old men are a hoot. Hold on, wait a minute. You're probably asking what happened to Gaston, though. Not long after the forged will was in the law books as such, Gaston could be found with his old pal, William Burns. William Burns was now in the Bureau of Investigations, and he hired Means and didn't even inform the director, Harry Doherty. Once he found out, Doherty suspended Means, and then he reinstated him just so he could fire him shortly after. Now who's responsible, I say, who's responsible for this unwarranted attack on my person? Fortunately, I keep my feathers numbered for, for just such an emergency. Doherty was a member of President Harding's Ohio gang, and the Ohio gang's actions at the time were being scrutinized by the Senate. Gaston claimed he already investigated all of these guys. And since he was under indictment from New York for prohibition violations and attempted blackmail, Means spilled his beans and told of the involvement of not just Doherty, but Secretary of the Treasury Andrew Mellon, among others. Means even framed the suicide of Jess Smith, another Ohio gang associate, as happening the day after he told Smith he was going to be taking all of this information to Congress, coming clean with all of it. You could probably guess, at this time, nobody was fucking buying what Gaston was selling anymore. At least not anybody who actually knew him. He was eventually sentenced to four years total for his prohibition violations, as well as his attempted blackmail of Harry Doherty. In 1928, Gaston was released from prison in Atlanta. He was supposed to pay $20,000 in fines, but he never had to because, you know, he claimed he was destitute. In 1930, in true means fashion, he conned an author into writing a book for him. It was called The Strange Death of President Harding. This book was absolutely scandalous, just like anything Gaston has ever done in his life. The most sensational of the stories that he told in this book was that President Harding was poisoned by Mrs. Harding due to his ongoing romance with Nan Britton. He also revealed that Jess Smith didn't commit suicide at all. The whole book was deemed to be full of the same old means bullshit everyone had come to expect from him. And if you can believe it, when the royalties from the book's sensationalism ran out, he gleefully repudiated the entire book. By 1932, everyone was like, Gaston who? And they'd soon be reminded of who exactly Gaston was. On March 1st, 1932, the almost two-year-old son of our country's beloved Charles Lindbergh was taken from his crib. Obviously, this was a nationwide story, and a legit manhunt ensued. Naturally, Means found a way to insert himself into this situation. Somehow, he convinced Evelyn McLean to put up a $100,000 guarantee, and he would arrange for the infant's return. Of course, he'd also need some money for his expenses, and $4,000 should do. Mrs. McLean was an heiress whose father had struck it rich in prospecting, and with that, she had also married the heir to the Washington Post and Cincinnati Inquirer. These people had more money than God, and they owned the Hope Diamond. I mean, so she's like, okay, I'll give you $104,000. 
And she did this because she was friends of the Lindbergh family, and obviously everyone wanted the Lindbergh baby returned safely. Gaston kept in touch and told her these wild stories about of this bad guy who they called the Fox. He kept Mrs. McLean aware of the situation and, and made sure he stayed on a wild goose chase. Eventually, the Lindbergh family paid $50,000 in ransom to a man named Richard Hopman from New York City. When this happened, Means phoned McLean and told her the kidnappers would not return the child without new bills. I found some of this pretty interesting because the $50,000 that was delivered in ransom actually had gold certificate notes that were included with the bills. And also, Richard Hopman was a German immigrant with a criminal history. So kind of right up Gaston's alley. I'd be really, really surprised if he wasn't actually involved in this thing. But it's been looked into, I'm assuming, so we'll just leave that there. Mrs. McLean's lawyer became aware of the situation and the authorities were notified. This was Gaston's most cruel con of them all, because we know that the Lindbergh baby was found dead on May 12th of that same year. The next month, Gaston Means was tried and found guilty of larceny for the $104,000 he took from Mrs. McLean. The judge displayed his disgust by saying Gaston's greed, quote, capitalized the sweetest, most tender sentiments of the human heart, end quote. Fifteen years was the sentence, and then they added on another two years for conspiring with the Fox, Norman Whitaker, in the additional $35,000 they, they almost got from Mrs. McLean. In December of 1938, Gaston Means died in federal prison at Leavenworth, Kansas. See? Serendipity to one may be the result of a scheme created by another. And unlike the idea of fate, serendipity can sort of be manipulated. I think we're all aware that it's possible to use the power of observation to take advantage of a situation, take advantage of people. This story is a good way to compare fate to fortune, destiny, or luck. A powerful, prominent family was fate for Gaston. His family's prominence and notoriety provided him privilege. He was spoiled, entitled, lazy, and he lacked empathy. That was his fate. And his fate brought him to fortune. Well, I mean, it brought him to prison too, but the few consequences he did face can't be blamed on fate. His privilege allowed him every opportunity to succeed in an honorable way. His deeply flawed personality and greed is what put him where he belonged eventually. That's it. That's the story of Gaston Means and how he tried to rob my great, great, great uncle James Clark King of millions. Hope you enjoyed the story. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Leave us a good review. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you have a really good story, don't be afraid to send it in. Until next time. Bye.